Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, it's Scott, the host of the show. I wanted to let you know you should hang around after today's story. Recently, I met Margot. She's the host of a true crime podcast I'd never heard of before called Military Murder, and it's awesome. I'll tell you about that after the show. And I also wanted to let you know the story in today's episode includes a description of a sexual attack on a child. Please listen with discretion. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. David Tyler lives right here in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. My name is David Tyler. I'm the executive director of Forgotten Angels. A little over 10 years ago, I had the privilege of becoming friends with Mr. James Bain. David is the person who introduced me to James Bain. James was arrested at age 19 as a suspect in a horrible crime, which you'll learn about in a few minutes. He was convicted for that crime and sentenced to prison. He spent 35 years in prison as part of his punishment for that crime. James was released from prison on December 17, 2009, and David figured out how to get in touch with him. I had an opportunity to um, reach out to him, and I invited him to a a Buccaneers game. I realized that uh, he had actually gone into prison about two years before the Buccaneers actually even came into existence. And so I invited him to um, the Atlanta game in um, January of 2010. And James accepted the uh, invitation. And we had an amazing day. He got to meet Doug Williams from the Washington Redskins. He enjoyed the game. When we were about to, to separate, I had truly had a, a wonderful time. And I had asked him if he, uh, if he ever wanted to do anything again to, uh, you know, just let me know. And um, his next words were, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> so, What's interesting about this is the story behind why James was released. It's not because he finished his prison sentence or because he convinced the parole board that he was ready to enter society again. James was released because after he had spent 35 years in prison, DNA evidence cleared him of being connected with the crime. He was innocent. David Tyler recognized that what James needed now was a friend. We just really had a, a good time getting to know each other, and uh, we've been friends for uh, for 10 years now. I had the privilege of being one of the groomsmen uh, when he uh, got married to his beautiful wife, I was privileged to be able to witness many of the first, uh, for James, things that we take for granted, his first 
NFL football game, his first NHL hockey game, his first game of arena football, which uh, didn't even exist when James was incarcerated back in the 70s. David runs Forgotten Angels, which is a home for young men who have aged out of the foster care system and need some guidance for their life. And James Bain helps with that. He comes over to the, the property where we house 14 boys at Forgotten Angels, um, has spoken to the young men about their responsibilities as young men and holding themselves accountable for what they do, where they are, who they hang out with, and uh, more importantly, what they believe in, where they hope to be, to be in the future. It's kind of hard for me to even wrap my mind around being out of normal society for 35 years. I mean, that was in the mid-1970s. No one had computers. No one had cell phones. Even a lot of televisions being sold then were still just black and white. So you can imagine, it was quite a revelation for James when he was released, and he saw how the world and technology had changed over 35 years. The very first time... I met him on my motorcycle. I had a small MP3 player. And when I arrived at his house, he was outside waiting for me. And when I took my helmet off and removed the earbuds from my ears, he asked me, what is that? And of course, I was in the middle of turning off the Nano. And I told him that it was an MP3 player. And of course, he didn't know what that was. And so he had asked me, you know, how many songs did I have on it? And at the time, I only had around 45, 50 songs. And uh, when I told him, he looked at me with this bewildered look. And the first thing that he said was, how do you get that much tape in there? David introduced me to James a few months ago at a small get together. It was the 10 year anniversary of the day James was released from prison. I asked him if he'd like to come on the podcast and tell his story. I hope you enjoy it. Where were you living when you were 19 years old? When I was 19, I was living in Lake Wales, Florida. I was in 11th grade at the time this occurred. Okay, let's talk about what happened that night. Now, this was on March the 4th, 1974. What was the crime that happened that night? March the 4th, I happened to be down to some friend's house. Just having fun because we knew where their mother would be at at the time. This occurred because she normally don't come home till 1130. So we was on there, me and about five other guys, just uh, doing our normally routine. Okay, after that ended, so I start walking home to my house, which is about four houses down from me. So on my way home, I just walked to the house. Walked inside my house, asked my sister what she was watching. She told me. So I just said, yeah. So I laid there on the couch for a few minutes, and then I got on the floor. Once I got on the floor, I went to sleep. And the next thing I know, my sister was waking me up, telling me someone want me at the door. Who want me at the door? I asked her. She said, the police. The police? She said, yes. So I got up. I went to the door. They asked me. They asked me my name. I told them my name. And from that point, they told me, if you don't mind, would you go down to the station with me? We got a small problem down there we want to clear up. Without me hesitating, I even to go ask my mom and dad, which was in the back room. I just thought I was just going to go right down there and come right back. But it didn't occur that way. Once they took me out and took me to the car, they read me my rights, put me in the car and took me down to the local station. Then they took me in a room, let me sit there about for 30 to 40 minutes. And then they start coming in, questioning me, asked me where I was, what I was doing. And I told them, but they never revealed that whole time they came in and told me what really occurred. I didn't find this out until I went to Bartow County Jail because they told me once I was in there, we're going to have to keep you overnight. I said, keep me overnight? For what? They wouldn't state. They said, we're going to keep you overnight. 
and you'll be transferred to Bokto County Jail the following morning. So I stayed there as uh, no other choice. I stayed there. And then they transferred me to Bokto County Jail. Once I went to Bokto County Jail, they put me in another room, and then they came out, and then they started questioning me again. And that's when the case unfolded. So when they took you in that night, you were actually under arrest then? Yeah, I guess I was. They didn't state nothing to me about what was going on until I went to Bato County Jail. Once I got went to Bato County Jail, and then they told me exactly what had happened. They told me a, a guy had got, a kid had got raped out on a softball diamond out on the pitcher's mine which is very well known in Lake Wales from around the counties and other counties come out here and play softball. But he was taken from a house out through Orange Road, out on the baseball dam. From that point, he was clothes was stripped off of him, his pajamas, and the perpetrator told him, if you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And this is what he said during the court. This is what I'm saying now. This is what was said in the courtroom. He said, if you look at me, I'm going to kill you. He was frightened and he was scared, and he did everything he told him to do. So once he took him out on the diamond, he forced his head down on the diamond and told him once again, if you look at me, I will kill you. And from that point, he started tearing his clothes off, which he had on pajamas that night. He tore his pajamas off, tore his boxes off, took his penis out, stuck it in his rectum. And that's when my name came about. He told him, the perpetrator told him, my name is Jimmy Bain. I ride a red motorcycle. And that's all he told him. And he told him once again, after he finished jackalading off in him, if you look at me, I'm going to kill you. So he stayed there. He stayed it in the trial until the perpetrator walked away back into the orange grove. And he got up and started coming back home. And on his way home, he come out the orange grove back into the streets. And his parents was already out there waiting, which they didn't know he was going to come out at the time. So once he came out, he seen them. They seen him. They well, He walked up to him and told him exactly what took place out on the baseball diamond. They were looking for him already then? Yeah, they was getting ready to look for him with the police. And being that his uncle, being the principal at the school at this time, but I knew him from grade school on up. I knew him very well. Actually, we didn't never get along, but he knew me by the name of... Jimmy, that's what the perpetrator used during the rape. This is exactly what he said after he found out it wasn't me through DNA. This is what the victim did. He called back to the Innocent Project, sir, and he told him exactly what took place that night. He took upon himself to call him and told him exactly what took place. And this is what he told him. He said, my uncle went back to the school, got a picture of Jimmy Bain, which he stated as well during the rape. The perpetrator had a beard. I did have a beard, true enough, at that age. And he said he was trying to see him, but he could never see him. Called the, the way he was pressing his head into the pitcher's mind. But he stated, his uncle said, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Bain. That name sounds familiar. So they took him there. They went to the police station. He went, the uncle, and that name rung a bell to him. And from my understanding, it's exactly what he did. He went to the school because he's the principal now. And the name rang a bell. He go to the school and get my picture photo, uh, school records, and bring it back to the police. 
and set it on the desk in front of him with him and the police and say, is this Jimmy Bain? Apparently at that age, at that time, being frightened, he said, yeah. And that's how I got involved. And as you look back through the years, this case unfolded two miles away. And you remember, I'm telling you, I'm walking away from, from these other people's houses, just as four houses down from mine, which was never said during the crime. So that was never brought up during the trial? Never brought up. How long were you in jail before it went to trial? I was in jail 81 days. And during that time, what were you thinking? Like, obviously, this is going to get cleared up, right? Or Well, very well. I thought it was going to get cleared up before we went to trial. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, Cook Unity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So at this point, you you were, you were needed to get a lawyer and... Everything. That's what my mom was doing, doing that process. My mother and father doing that process while I was in the jail. Were they able to find a good attorney for you? Well, actually, they wanted to get one out of Lake Wales, but it, it, my mother and father both were skeptical of it. So they got one, uh, I mean, out of, out of Tampa, but they said it's best to try to get one out of Polk County. So we got one out of Polk County. Was he okay? Did he do a good job or? Sir, after I look back over that trial every night for 30-something years, 35 years, he did a very bad job. It sounds like it's such an obvious thing. When you've got an alibi like that, why would he not bring that up? Well, <laughs> you'll guess good as mine. And my mother and them paid him so much money, I don't even know today how much they paid him. They took that to the grave, what they actually paid him. In my opinion of that, he just kept me off death row. That's all he did. Do you think he really actually thought you were guilty? Well, apparently he did. Because, sir, during the investigation, he didn't go to the crime scene. He drove by the house with some of my family members. Not him. Some of his attorneys worked up on there. They just drove by the house. They didn't go inside for no DNA or nothing such as that. Not DNA, but just blood sample and force of interest. They didn't do none of this. After hearing, because I subpoenaed 12 peoples, the state took upon themselves to subpoena only four. And I kind of had that feeling something was going to go wrong then. And once the trial started, everything 
was going through his process of weak A, strong A, strong B blood types. But that seemed to matter no way anyway, because I had a lawyers, I had doctors on his side and doctors on my side. Speaking about the strong A, weak A, strong B, and all this issue pertaining to the blood type. Blood type, okay. Yes. But once they put him on the stand, and sir, they asked him, is the person in this courtroom who did this to you? They asked him to stand up, and once he stood up and pointed at me and told it, the, the jurors and everybody in the courtroom that was me who did this to him. I knew from that point then I wouldn't get out of this. I was found guilty by a juror of five whites and one black. Were you sentenced that day or was it later? Actually, they sentenced me about a month later, I think, sir. About a month later. Everybody came, the same as they did in the trial, sir, which, as you see, to no avail. The final sentence I was given was a mandatory quarter, meaning you have to do 25 years before you're eligible to see the parole board. Mandatory quarter with a life sentence. With that, that's no limitation on getting out of prison, for the way the state see it. You could see the parole board after 25 years. Yes, which I did, got a chance to see. But that as well, sir, is to no avail. Can you talk about that first day that you went into prison? Well, sir, that was one of the most horrible experiences I can ever go through. It's like being on another planet. That's just how it felt. I'm young. I don't know what to do, how to do. I was just snatched off the street and put in this atmosphere. I just did, uh, did more looking and trying to find a way to fit myself in here. Mainly I stayed around people I knew because I knew a few people that was at the prison from Lake Wales. And I kind of kind of just hung around them over the period of time for a couple of months and years went by. How did you adapt during those first few months? It took me at least 10 years before I found myself knowing I wasn't going to get out of here, so I must do the best I can to try to keep my health, my sanity, and my dignity in there. It took about 10 years. So it took that long for you to come to that realization that this is real. This is real, correctly. Were you ever attacked? In prison? Well, sir, that's one of the first thing you got to do if you could, because in prison, a simple look, a brush, you got to defend yourself. Because you're normally on your own. No, I had so many, many, many fights in there, sir. Because to me, that atmosphere through all those years, it's like being on the surrogate. And you know, on the surrogate, only the strong survive. Obviously, you had some friends that you made in prison, but yes, you also had some enemies, probably. Oh, yeah. You always got that, sir, because it's a close environment. And main thing about prison system, you probably ain't never comprehend, is tension. It always tension in there. When you got 18-year-old boy telling you what to do, a police, you got to do exactly what he tell you to do. A kid just got a job in the system. Now, just try to picture that. He telling you what to do, how to do it. And that's the main thing about that issue there is tension, tension, tension. I can imagine it would be bad enough for the people that are in there that know they should be in there. Yes. But you're there. Did you try to explain to any? I guess it doesn't do any good to try to explain, hey, wait a minute, I'm innocent. I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. No, they feel this, your classification office. These people you see twice a year for progress. And they look at your record and try to judge you, see if you got DRs and how you're doing. Is you in program? You're going to school. You're doing your job. 
This is just a record that they keep through the years. Did you join a gang? Oh, no, no, no. I've never been in a gang. Never, and I never even dream of getting in a gang. I've heard sometimes people will say, you know, when you go into prison, you gotta you got to join a gang or a group so that you can be defended or they can help you. That's so very true now. Since the early 80s, it was a thing now. It's even worse now. But back then, it, you didn't need to. No, 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 no. It, what we call there is a homeboy thing during the eras I was in there. Because if you have a problem with somebody, normally your homeboy going to help you out, in a sense, with your problem. But all the times I got in problems, I tried to do it myself. And that way it don't show a sign of weakness. Although I was a very small person. But if you stand up, they'll understand that. I don't mean the police, the inmates. you got to earn their respect. Oh, yeah. Yes, you better earn it. What prisons were you in throughout that time? I was in six of them, sir. Okeechobee was the last one I was in before I left. Spent 15 years at Polk. Polk. That was the longest I was at one facility. Was that the first one? No, no, that was the that was the second one. And why do they move you from one prison to another? Well, that's something that's something is something they've been doing since the early eighties. But now it's very common to do it because uh, they don't want you to get too familiar with staff. And believe me, we can't get up on the staff. It don't take long. <laughs> I'm living proof that you can get up on the staff. What does that mean? Can you can you explain that? What that means, if I could play you to do anything or to bring me something, I could get you to do anything for me. That's the bottom line. If I could persuade you, that's the key word you're looking for, persuade. And that's going on every day, each day. That's why they have to try to move you around after a certain amount of years. What kind of stuff would the staff bring in? Anything I could talk you into bringing, sir. Like what? What would you want? Anything. Anything. But normally it's drugs. When an inmate wants a wants a, a staff member to bring drugs in, is that so that they can sell that to other inmates or for they can use it themselves? Use it themselves and sell it. How does the, an inmate pay a staff person to do that? Well, he could do it with a money order or... Give him his telephone number and have him to send a money order to you. Or get a certain number he could call that the inmate would give him to call. And then they'd wire money over that way. Like his a friend on the outside could, could pay him? Yeah, correct, correct, oh, okay. correct. It always a, a connection if I could get you to do it. Usually convictions for crimes against a child are especially bad in prison. Oh, very, very, very horrible. Did the other inmates know what you what you were convicted for? Well, actually, after so many years being in there, I went in with the theory of fighting. So I had to put my life at risk with what we call the jailhouse lawyers. But the moment I got in there, sir, I went to fight. And I met quite a few of them through the years. Because you can't tell them no lie. Because once they start filing your paperwork and some come back that you didn't tell them, you're at risk. So you have to be honest with them. Or you could be slack on paying them. You're talking about paying the staff, the guards? No, no, no. It's paying the inmate to do your paperwork for you. You give them cigarettes, canteen items, and that kind of stuff. So that's how those inmates that file the paperwork, they're the ones that would tell the other ones, okay, you're paying them just to keep quiet. Correct, because they're so busy doing theirs, but they're willing to accept that from you or anyone to do your paperwork. Because everybody don't go in there with an education <laughs> to try to fight their cases. So most of the other people in the prison didn't really didn't know what your real charge was then? Well, actually, the guys who did my paperwork, they had to know. I wouldn't go keep it from them. 
But I had to take the risk, sir. You got to remember, risk always involved here. So you were counting on them not to let that get out? I ain't had no other choice if I'm going to get out of prison, sir. I got to take that risk. Were, were you ever in special protective custody in prison? Oh, no, no, none of that, none of that. All that came later in the years. What was it that finally happened that enabled your case to be reopened? Because, like I told you, I've been writing and writing and writing so many writs and throughout the years. Just this one particular writ that I wrote at Obechobe, where they told me I'll be coming back to the county jail and having my case heard. And these people now in the Innocent Project, even back then, they get a weekly journal come out every month indicating cases finna be unfolded in Florida systems. And they look at these weekly journals and see if there's any way that it could help guys with their cases. So when I got in contact with them, the gentleman was going to another country. So he happened to, while he was on his flight, he decided to pull out his weekly journal and look at the cases, getting ready to be unfolded this month, this upcoming month. And he seen mine. And he said he looked at it and he said, oh, maybe this guy needs some help. And he stated, as soon as he got to the place he was going, he called back to the Innocent Project in Tallahassee and told them, can they look into my case after he told my name and my DC number? Within eight months after our first call, I was released. It took them eight months. There was a change in the law about DNA testing, wasn't there? Or it was so it was so many things that they were using against me, sir. But that's it was the DNA that was the deciding factor. Though. Oh yeah, that was the deciding factor. But they first have to go. The Innocent Project have to go through the paperwork with the state. That's why it was. They trying to do as much as they can to get them not to do it. But you can't stop somebody outside, and mainly those people who are lawyers. You can't stop them, because believe it or not, through the years they was telling me everything in my case was destroyed. You can believe that? All the evidence was destroyed? This is what it was telling me what these chain gang lawyers writing through the years. All my evidence was destroyed. But as soon as they got involved. The Innocence Project. Yeah, as soon as the Innocence Project got involved, less than two weeks, they found the boxes in the archive in Bato storage. The boxers that the little boy was wearing that night? That he was wearing and that the same shorts out the clothing I was wearing. That's just amazing that it was in storage all that time. But it was right about the record. All that is destroyed. But the boxes and the clothing they took that night from both of us was still there, but separated, though. That's where they got the DNA out the boxes that excluded me. So it was somebody else's. Yes, yes. But you got to remember, sir, with this DNA then and now, this is a powerful tool because that could have saved the state a lot of things from an old case that I come to find out that I could have had. And that could have brought the dots together with this DNA. That's what they do with it now. It can either free you or lock you. That's what I mean. Because you can have something that you ain't talking about or don't want to talk about. Because they drill you, sir. They like the military. They're going to ask you and ask you every time they call you or come and see you. Do you want to take this test? Do you want to take it? But you don't know the obstacles until afterwards. That's what they're trying to tell you. Because they ain't going to tell you directly in your face. You might have something else that this thing might could bring up. Because sitting there talking to these people, you could tell them anything to convince them. But I come to find out that DNA going to do one of the two. It's going to lock you or free you. I told them each time they came, I want to take it. Right, because you knew you were innocent from the start. Oh, I know. Yeah, I knew from the beginning. 
So the Innocence Project was able to get access to DNA testing, and that's what excluded you as the source. Correct. Okay. Correct. So I, my understanding is that led to a motion to declare you innocent? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then and you were released. What day were you? No, no, I wasn't released even then. After they found me that it wasn't me, and I'm still in the prison system. You know who came in? DNA, I mean, DNA me while I was in the system? The state came. The state came right before I was getting ready to go back to trial. They came about two weeks before I was getting ready to go back to trial to have it here. They wanted to test me themselves. They called me up front and told me they want to swab me. They want to test me. They told me everything they wanted to do. I told them, go ahead, take it. So they did their test. And believe it or not, less than about 15 minutes before I was going to go see the judge, they had stipulations put in. But within, within that 15 minutes, the state came and made the same conclusion that it wasn't me. Because they had in mind of probably putting a monitor on me. That's what the lawyers was telling me. Because they, they weren't sure in what they was going to do. Until the state came and made their conclusion within 15 minutes before I went out. And that's why the judge told me on my way out, you are cleared of everything. I've seen this video in the courtroom where the judge declared you innocent and, and you were free from that moment. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They stated that my lawyers, the DNA, I mean, um, lawyers for the DNA stated they're going to try to have me out before Christmas, which they was able to do. Let's listen to what happened in court that day. Before we were scheduled to start, we talked back on with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Uh, it's been absolutely terrific and expediting uh, the testing of the evidence that was submitted to them. And they have uh, excluded Mr. Bain as the source of the semen on the uh, victim's underwear. And they have found uh, uh, no indication of serological value on the defendant's pants or underwear. Uh, and he's just not connected with this particular incident. So based on that, the state of Florida, along with uh, the defense, would like to file with the court a joint motion to vacate the judgment and sentence. The state of Florida would also uh, like to file just to make sure there's no misunderstanding. Uh, notice of null process in this case, and we will submit to the court in order uh, vacating the judgment and sentence. Right, so we have Gentlemen, is there anything else before I sign the order I need to do? <laughs> Hearing nothing, I'll go ahead at this time, assuming I've got a pen somewhere, which I do. I am now signing the order, sir. You are a free man. Congratulations. What was the first thing you did when you were after you were released? Uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to get home to my mother, which my mother was elderly. Health problems, a lot of them throughout the years. That's why she wasn't able to be there at the courthouse the day of my release. But she made a good statement. She watched it all on TV until I got to the house. And how far away was it from for her house from, from the courthouse? Oh, my mother said about 54 miles from Bato to Tampa, about 50-some miles. So she saw it on TV, and she knew you were on your way home. Oh, yes, she knew. She had to be pretty excited about that. Oh, was she? Was she? And and I'm sure you were, too, obviously. Oh, well, yes, I was. What was your first meal when you got out? Well, my first meal, they brought it in the courtroom, which was chicken and something else they brought. Pizzas. But I didn't care for no pizzas at that time. But that's what they brought in. Wasn't there a soda that you were you were looking for? Well, actually, well, actually, the, the lawyer made a good statement of choices now that I have. He brought a Dr. Pepper, and he brought a Mountain Dew. He said, now you got a choice, which one you want. But instead, you can have both of them. 
What did you notice when you got out? What change had happened the most that you could see? Sir, you got to remember when I got out. I mean, I went in. I went in 1974. Nixon, Nixon was just getting ready to be impeached. And they just had landed on the moon prior, 68. As you could imagine what, it, what done changed in, in that length of time. <laughs> so much to say or you can think of what done changed. Mainly people's now. It's more people. How do you mean that? It's more people on the planet because medicine done got better, sir, than it was in 1974. Cars done went aerodynamic, planes, anything, boats, motorcycles, all this kind of stuff done went aerodynamic. So you can imagine me just trying to walk from one year to the next street. I'm scared. Because all this traffic moving, everybody zooming. Nobody never missed me unless I said something to them. Whoever walking past you or by you, they just going forward. That's all they know. I was scared to even cross the streets without somebody watching for me. So I didn't go very far away from the house, right outside the door and look down the streets. What do you, what do, you do when you, after you've been in there for so long, and now you've got a, you know, you're out and you're free. You can do whatever you want. Did you have a plan, career, or anything? What, what did you want to do? No, ain't nobody got no plan coming out of there. You just trying to fit back in. That's why each one of us today get out. It's a different. It's very, very different. Because ain't no two going to get out the same. No two. Because that atmosphere there can do a lot of damage to you, sir. A lot of damage. How long did it take you to adapt being outside? Well, sir, it didn't take me no time. I don't know why or how, but it didn't take me no time. Have you had any contact with the victim or his family? After he found out personally that it would me, he took upon himself to call the Innocent Project and told him exactly once again what took place that night in that county jail. They were shocked. Have you been able to talk with him at all? No, actually, I told him I, I, I would love to talk to him. But believe it or not, sir, you believe this? His father got some kind of thing over him. This gentleman was 47 years old when I got out. And he's still afraid of his father. But him and his father the night, that night that took place, him and his father... And mother been separated for many, many years. Now, how can you let somebody still have some kind of hold over you? He didn't tell me directly, but I could tell in his conversation with the, with the people from the Innocent Project. But I told him I would love to meet him face to face. But he said, he told them, uh, I, I would love to do it myself, but my father, you 40-something years old. I don't know. Sir. Yeah, he must want to talk to have some things to say to you. I mean, it was his testimony that was the biggest part yeah, it, that, it, that sent correct. you away. Correct, correct. I guess he just wanted to clear his conscience. That's why he called. I've heard you say that you're not angry with anyone for all of those all those lost years. Why? How can you not be angry? And sir, because you got to remember, I'm on the surrogate. You know, I, I never said this to you. I, I didn't say it to other people, though. But I had in mind of killing people as well myself in there. Or be killed by someone. Because of the tension. There's so much tension, sir. A look, a bump, anything. How can you go through a system even back then without rubbing against somebody? Or having words with somebody? That's why I told you prior, I done had many, many fights. But I'm thankful that I didn't lose the body part. What I mean by getting stabbed, burnt, gas, any kind of things that show some serious factory factors on your body. And I give all that thanks to God. That's why I feel the moment I got out of prison for the first two hours being bombarded by the meteor and my family. Couldn't nobody else did got me through that but him. That's why I gave all that anger, I gave it away. 
That's when I became spiritual. Because I couldn't have did this without him. It's almost miraculous to think that you can lose that much time of your life and not have some bitterness about it. No, no, yeah. I have to be blessed, sir, because I'm watching people all around me dying. Over a simple look, a bump, a rub, once you find out why they killed this person. What would you say to someone, someone that's in prison right now and they're innocent? What would you say to them or what advice would you have for that person? They got a better way of doing it now, sir. All they have to do is reach out to these innocent projects around the country. They don't have to go with the chain gang lawyer. They got numbers now. They could go right in the library and get it. But they just have to wait until the cases get heard because they being bombarded every day by these requests around the globe. Yeah, and there's uh, Innocence Project chapters in every major city. Oh, yeah, yeah, everywhere. That's why we do what we do now. Go speak and try to get the world aware of this. So you, you work with them to promote their cause now. Oh, yes. Believe it or not, I'm one of I'm their leader here in Florida. I'm their spokesman. When the rest of the guys done got out, which makes sense, they done went on with their lives, I decided to stay there. This is where I could give back. So you're having a part in getting other innocent people out. Oh, yeah. I'm normally going to everyone now when gentlemen are getting out now. They call on me to be there to comfort the guys who get getting out. And do you help them to fit into society after they're released? Well, if, I, if I can. Yeah, I, I try to. I do as much as I can. But we have what we call a social worker that does that very well here in Florida. Very well. Right, because these guys need to find work and a place to stay. and Yeah, and that's another thing we're trying to do around the country as well, get social workers in other systems of these innocent projects, which it costs money, and that's something they don't have. So everything given to them is normally donated. Is the Innocence Project actually a, a nonprofit, a 501c3? They are correct. They are. How are they funded then? They just got people donating to them? Correct, correct. That's why we speak each and every chance we get, sir. Everywhere we go, we have to try to get somebody to help us because them DNA tests cost up to two to $3,000 for one person to take. Wow, I didn't realize that. Well, well you, you have to know the scenario behind them. So that's why we have to get out and do a lot, a lot of fundraising. Just came from one this past Sunday. <laughs> So we are forever doing that, sir, around the country. It's a good arrangement. I mean, it, it worked. it's worked out well. They got you out and free, and now you're helping them yeah. in return. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's my second job besides my family. James, what's your life like today? Now that I've been out, I met a lady on my sister job, which is a VF here in Tampa. They got a big, big job where my sister been there at least over 30 some years. And they was watching my case unfold by TV. And the company invited me to come and make a tour through the place of business. And on my way there, I got there and I went to got with my sister, which been there 30 some years. She went me to walk me through the whole building and let me see what they do and what they've been doing, and I got a chance to do all that. But on my way out the building, I met the lady of my life. How did you meet? Well, we just met on the way out. I was on my way out the building, and I looked at her. She looked at me, and she she Hispanic. And so we called I. We got a chance to talk, which I couldn't talk, but people in the plant was translating for us. Oh, because she speaks Spanish only? Yeah, yeah, she's she only been in this country five years at that time we met. So they had someone personally to translate for me. Matter of fact, two sisters, and they so very close to us even today. So they translated for us. I told her I would like to talk to her now. And we got a chance to talk, and I said to her that day we met, we'll see how things go. Now here we is practically going on nine years.
from that one conversation when I told her we'd see how things go. And we got married maybe about a year or so later. Yeah, now I have a seven-year-old son, and I also have a 13-year-old daughter, which she was three at the time. I'm not the biological father. But I did get a chance to meet him once, but she see me now as her father, which very well understood at the age of three who is him. (laughs) Yes, but now she knows. It seems like when you were inside, it would have been hard to imagine what your life is like now. I tell her that every day, each and every day, her and the children, because they're able to understand. And you have been out now for how long? Ten years? Ten years. Ten years in about a month now. I know. That's when you and I met was the the, the ten-year anniversary. Correct. Our friend uh, David had a few people over and... Celebrated yes. the 10-year anniversary of your release. Correct. The sad part still is that there's some innocent people still in prison. Yeah, that's the most key thing to this whole conversation. That's why we do what we do. So, and you're you're doing everything you can to, to get them out. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right. I'm sad that it happened to you, but your your attitude and outlook is incredible. It is not my time, sir. It's his time. Not mine. Couldn't have did it without him. Big thanks to James for coming on here and telling his story. I also want to say thanks to David Tyler for connecting me with James. As I mentioned at the top of the show, David runs Forgotten Angels, and you can check out their work at ForgottenAngelsFlorida.org. And one more thank you to my friend Bruce, a fellow podcaster who connected me with David. I love having this great network of amazing people. And speaking of amazing, you need to listen to my friend Margot. I met Margot just recently at PodFest, a big podcaster conference in Orlando. I told her about my podcast and she told me about her podcast. And now we're big fans of each other's shows. Hers is a true crime show called Military Murder. I'll let her tell you about that. But seriously, listen to her show and tell me what you think of her style and the way she tells a story. I think she's great. And I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, true crime recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by private Joe Schmo or veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country allegedly in a diaper to confront her romantic rival. And most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now.